0: Welcome to episode six of the In the Name of Service podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Barb Thompson. Here we broadcast stories of men and women who've answered the call to serve in hopes of inspiring and catalyzing the rest of us to follow suit in our own way. Today's interview is with Steve Nisbet. Steve is a husband, father, special operations veteran, and the co-founder of Shields and Stripes, a nonprofit on mission to provide free, innovative, intensive and holistic care for veterans and first responders. I had the great opportunity to work alongside Steve for a few years in our previous positions. He is driven, bright, thoughtful, and humble. His kindness in welcoming an outsider into the fold surprised me when I first arrived at the unit several years ago. He was even willing to share the turf with a slow girl and didn't even talk too much trash. In today's conversation, I was struck by several themes I believe are worth mentioning up front. If you've ever felt like life has brought you through a winding, twisted, and uncertain path, don't worry, you're in good company. Has anyone ever told you you're not good enough or you won't make it? Stay and listen. And if your life of service has exposed you to loss after loss, and you're wondering how to keep going, you need to hear Steve's story. Today, he courageously takes us through his greatest struggles, his journey towards health and wholeness, and how he's revolutionizing the treatment possibilities for veterans and first responders through intensive and holistic care. I hope this conversation offers you encouragement on your journey and that the fire to keep going that Steve talks about is fueled in you today. Thank you for listening. Okay, Steve. Welcome to the In the Name of Service podcast. Start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background.
1: Awesome. Thanks for having me. So, a little bit about my boring life as I <laughs> started <laughs> out. Um, I grew up in Tucsoners, and I was born in Colorado. And I had two, well, I have two brothers. But grew up with two brothers. I'm a twin. And uh, throughout my entire childhood you know, my main goal was playing soccer. Like, that's, that's all I did, I was played sports. I played all sports, but competitively, I played soccer. So, that was my passion as I started to go through school, um, enter into high school, and, and even looking at college, you know, with no real plan, um, other than like, my you know, my dream was to play pro soccer. But in my high school, I mean, we weren't very good and there was no, uh, there was, like no scouts coming out to look at Santa Rita High School. Yeah. <laughs> Picking me up, like that's the guy. And uh, I didn't grow up, um, certainly not poor, but like, not rich, so, like, you know, lower middle class. And um, so we couldn't afford like travel ball. Like all my friends were doing travel soccer, things like that, and you know, couldn't afford um, a lot of things. And so I just did what I could um, with what I had. And then as I started to approach high school and, and graduating high school, the the uh, the question of what are you going to do, what are you going to do with your life kind of came up. And and I also really enjoyed space. I was just, a, a, I am a space nerd. I like, um, enjoy astronomy and things like that. Um, so I'm sure your listeners that are my friends will get to hear that. <laughs> They're like, oh, here he goes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> So that's what I wanted to do. And so so I was like, okay, well, if soccer's not a thing, I'll just go do the space thing. The the community college, because I didn't get scholarships to go to a university. It was too expensive for my parents to pay for and I couldn't afford it with my $5.15 an hour job. So I guess I'll go to community college and uh, give astronomy a try. And as I entered into my first year, I looked around at the people around me, and most of them were like in their 60s and 70s or maybe, maybe 50s and 60s, but there's a lot of old folk around me and I was like, wow, I am like the only 19 year old here in this class and I feel really out of place and like there's a lot more I could be doing with my life. And my dad, he uh, he spent four years in the Air Force as a security forces uh, officer and then he got out of that and then became a police officer. So he spent 30 years in law enforcement. So. When I was trying to figure out the next step, that's what kind of pushed me towards, all right, I'll, I'll just join the military because my dad you know, had a good experience there and then you know, just moved from there. Yeah,
0: so initially you were looking for something to fill the void. The but Air think, Force was something that you had seen.
1: Yeah, just the military in general. Like I didn't, know what, what, um, I didn't know what direction I wanted to go. I just knew that like all my friends went to the you know, went to University of Arizona or like other ones, and I was like the one kid that was like looking at all his friends kind of having goals and ambitions and they were pursuing those, and yeah, and I was like, man, I suck, I, I have nothing going on for me right now, and I got nowhere to go. So once you
0: decided to join the Air Force, was there some kind of way that you made the decision to pursue the particular career field that you ended up pursuing?
1: Yeah, so I went, um, I went to the recruiters' office. And my grandfather also spent uh, time in the Air Force as well, and so obviously like that was in my family. And I was like, you know what? Like that's that's the direction I want to go. I don't really want to go in the Army. Um, that, like and that was the Air Force was like, on my mind. So I went to the recruiters' office and um, took took the ads test and I scored really really well on those uh, on that test and. All the different categories there, and they're like, "Hey, you can do pretty much anything you want to do in the Air Force." And I was like, "What's the most challenging job that, <laughs> that you have to have? Um, that that you have to have a high score for, right? high intelligence for?" And not that I'm intelligent, but according to my ASVAB scores, I, I was. And uh, and they're like at a nuclear weapons programs, and I was like, "That sounds pretty. That sounds pretty wild." And my buddies were going to school to become engineers, and they had planes to work at IBM and Raytheon. And I was like, man, if I go do this nuclear weapons surprise and I learn about, you know, weapon systems and whatnot, maybe I can meet them. Maybe I can use use the some TAs and tuition assistance and some GI Bill, and I'll and I'll just go meet them back at the university, and and I'll have this knowledge, right? Yeah. And. Uh, so I was like, sign me up, sign me up for a nuclear weapons apprentice. And I was ready to go, sign some paperwork. And that was the plan, was to do this for four years and then go to school after that for the GI Bill and then meet up with my old pals and just like be a, be a team again. And uh,
0: Such a neat like, little package you had that wrapped up into. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> my, my brain was like, problem solved. Everything's good to go. And so I stepped out of the recruiter's office and next door is an army recruiter. And he was standing outside, and he's like, "Hey, son." And I was like, "Excuse me." And he's like, "Hey, come over here." And I was like, "I'm gonna I'm, I just signed paperwork with the Air Force, man. I don't. I don't think you could sell me anything right now." And he's like, "You want to be in Special Forces?" And I was like, "Well, dang. Well, I've never <laughs> thought of that. I like, have I've never considered that because I'm not special. Like I was like, you know, 120 pounds, 130 pounds, soaking wet. Like not a big dude." And, not super confident in myself. And I was like, let me hear what you have to say. And so he's like, yeah, you sign up, six years, get you a $20,000 signing bonus. And you could be a Green Beret or a Ranger, this and that. And I was like, man, that sounds pretty wild. Hang on a second. And I went back into the Air Force, Rickberry office, and I was like, hey, do you guys have uh, special forces career fields or anything like that? And they're like, yeah, but man, you just signed up for a nuclear weapons apprentice. Just go with that. And I was like, well, what, what, what are the jobs? And he's like, "Well, okay, it's combat control and pararescue. And I was like, can you got any information on that? And he's like, here, yeah, you can take this, but let me tell you, like, you're not going to make it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All <the> cool <laughs> um, and so he's like, you're not going to make it, man. It's, it's a 90% attrition rate, you know, only one out of 10 people make it. Um, and you're just, you're just better off to just go with what you have right now. And I was like, well, kind of, I want to make that decision myself. Um, And I looked at that, at the information he gave me and spent a couple days. And I came back and I was like, I want to be a combat controller. And uh, so that's what I started training for. Okay. Become a combat controller, right? And uh, as I was training, because medicine just wasn't like, I was like, that sounds like a lot that I don't want to to (laughs) do. Like it sounds a lot easier to just, like, you know, control combat, whatever that meant, because I didn't really know what that meant. Of course, yeah. And, and I was like, that sounds just more interesting. And, uh, and so I was training, and then I went to take the pass test, the, the physical ability and stamina test. And i are like, all right, which one are you gonna take? Uh, and I was like, well, what do you mean? They're like, well, one has a swim at the beginning, one has a swim at the end. And I was like, well, I've been training to do the, the swim at the end. Um, and so I was like, I'll just do that. And they're like, okay, you're gonna be a PJ. And I was like, hold on a second. I thought I was signing up to be a controller. Like, when you get to basic training, you can, it's the same thing. You'll figure it out they'll put you, you know, you just tell them there and they'll put you in the same spot. And at that moment, at that time, PJs and controllers were going through Indoc at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I believed this man. And I was like, okay, this guy wouldn't lie to me. And uh, so I took the test (laughs) and then he's like, all right, cool, you're ready to go. so I got in and then showed up to Indoc and and they're like, all right, you're just, you're going to be a P- all you guys are going trying to be PJs and I was like, well, that must be a controller and they're like, nope, this is a PJ class and I was like, sweet, wow, what is that about? And uh, and then so I started learning more and and then uh, just fell into into doing this and, and and this was happened to be the right path for me.
0: Isn't that funny? I never knew that about your story. I mean, I met you, you were a PJ. It seemed like the perfect fit. So I had no idea yeah. <laughs> the tumultuous beginning.
1: Yeah, so I give controllers a hard time, but deep down, I'm a controller inside. Oh, that you know—that's what they want to hear too. That's it. Yeah, I'm just better looking than most of them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> How did you make the decision to keep pushing in that direction? When I met you, you were at the most elite—you know—ground force unit in the Air Force, and that doesn't take just a little bit of effort.
1: Uh, yeah, so I went to Indoc, and actually at, at basic training, um, this be, this became a theme was. There was probably like 35 other dudes in the class that were trying to become PJs in my basic training class. And so, as I'm doing, as we're doing whatever, you know, basic training, just rolling socks and marching around in circles, um, I would go to sleep at night at like 9 p.m. or whenever it's time to shut down and, and wake up at three in the morning. Well, everybody else that's trying to become a PJ is sitting there doing push ups and pull ups and like working out extra. And I was like, God dang, I'm tired
0: right
1: I'm going to sleep and uh and the TI and the training instructor is like hey uh Nesbitt, come over here and uh I stand in front of them he's like look at you see all those guys over there those are the guys that are going to make it you're not going to be you're not going to make it you're going to be the one to quit because they're putting in the extra work and whatnot I was like well I guess I get like I, I'm still like I, I can talk back to him but I was like oh Maybe he's right, but this guy also doesn't know me at all. But lo and behold, we go through NDOC, and of those 35 other folks, I was the only one to finish. All of the other ones quit. Goodness. And, yeah, and so it just goes back to show, like, you know, even though somebody can tell me that I, I'm not going to make it, and just like that guy, uh, the recruiter, and this TI, this training instructor, like, as part of me pushing through was just. People kept telling me I can't do it. You're not going to be able to make it. I was still 130 pounds, uh, but I, I guess I had the fire to continue to keep going. And, and as I continued throughout the career, like I finished our apprentice course, PJ University or whatever, PJU. I finished that and I only had the intent to really go to, to rescue, like a rescue squadron. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, I want to do like a rescue squadron. Like I, I still didn't feel like I was. Aggressive enough, or like confident enough to to really get into combat, you know, mm-hmm. really get into to some firefights. And I was like, what interested me it was like doing rescues, like civilian rescues, like that was. I don't know at that time. That's that felt like the right answer for me to oh, one of the reasons why I got in. I'm like, I want to help other people. Yeah. And then uh, I was gonna go to a rescue squadron, and then I ended up a slot I ended up opening up at ST squadron out in Okinawa and uh, when that slot opened up uh, um, they took like the top four dudes of those classes and, and I think I was ranked number four in the class and so I went to the ST squadron in Oki and I was like well I guess we'll see how this goes and, uh, and then I ended up deploying um, augmenting 24th and um, had a mixed experience but that kind of pushed me in the direction of like Okay, maybe maybe I do want to get involved in some some combat action because I'm watching these guys go um, assault targets and, and I got to treat some folks and, and got to do some pretty cool things overseas. And I was like, wow, that was that adrenaline rush really got me going. And, uh, and so I just kept, I was like, I'll, I'll re-enlist and see what this is about one more time. Yeah. And, and then I went to Nellis and really Kazovac at the rescue squadrons picked up and some guys are overseas doing a lot of point of injury rescues going out to you know IED sites or whatever and we run like six missions a day and so I go out and do a couple of those deployments and and just really got some some really good pj experience and I was like that was really like fulfilling that was really addicting to to get out there and you know engage get engaged at and and pull these Americans or these coalition forces off the battlefield, and, and do do our best to to get into a higher level of care.
0: What do you think has been your most meaningful experience during your Air Force career?
1: That was a that was a, that was a tough one. That was a one I kind of thought about for a little while. But the me, most meaningful experience—I mean, it's a cliche um, of the teamwork, right? Yeah. The team, the team that I'm that I'm around, the, the caliber of individuals that that are around me and uh, the team that I got to lead uh, had a really meaningful experience leading those teams, and and it it didn't mean a lot to me that I was to be a team leader and and not just like manage folks, but uh, to to really do my best to lead them and make sure that that they're taken care of and, that, and I'm doing the best I could. But I guess a couple. I'm going to give a couple answers here. Yeah. One of them was. In one of the deployments, um, I think it was 2012. Um, we typically overseas, like work and rescue, you, you pick up a, a casualty or pick up some you know, somebody, and and you bring them back, and you don't really get like the closure. You don't get what happened next after that. You get mm-hmm. uh, they get to the hospital. and It's like oh, wonder, I wonder how they're doing. Well, um, one particular instance, there was a uh, New Zealand. Uh, team that was up in northern Afghanistan and they got hit with an IED and they called, you know, a nine line in. And this was more like a PR, like a personal rescue mission rather than like a, a CASAVAC. And so they, so those go directly to us. So for me to see that as a team leader, I knew that these people wanted wanted PJs. They didn't want uh, dust off or, or army medics. They, they specifically asking for pjs to show up there and so that was there was a unique request from these folks and so as we showed up it was an IED, a soft skin um um and pretty much completely obliterated and, and it was a command detonated and so we helped them recover the bodies of these three new zealanders and put them in, in body bags and uh, get them on the heel on the on the helicopter to take them back and you know, one of the decisions I made or or asked, um, because typically we carry American flags to put on the body bags of our of our fallen.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I asked the pilots, "Hey, can we call their base and go pick up some flags, some New Zealander flags, and pin it on these body bags? Well, and then we'll take these take their bodies to to Bagram and uh, do the mortuary affairs process and. So that, we flew there and landed, and pretty much their entire team and their command staff was there waiting. Hmm. Um, and so they had their flags, and we let them help pin the flags on and watch them say their goodbyes to, to their teammates, and they're fallen And uh, it was a very you know, humbling process, and and I'm thankful that I was able to provide that for them. Right. And, and then was able to take off and fly back to Bagram and, and give them the full services. Well then a week later I was able to see, uh, they had posted a video of they being, the New Zealanders posted a video of these three fallen returning home. And it's uh, but it's pretty much the entire regiment uh, and the three hearses pulling down their, down a driveway and the entire regiment's kind of walking towards them, and they start doing the haka, which is their their uh, traditional dance, uh, a warrior's dance, uh, and and doing it towards the, the fallen um, as they start to you know, go through the, through the funeral process and whatnot. So that, for me, right there, was the first time I got to watch, you know, from from point of entry or point of call right. to go pick them up, to go take them to you know, friends and families, and then see what happened at the very end. Yeah. Uh, so that that was very, well, oh, that, that stuck with me for a long period of time. I mean, I was just still going to stick with me you know, because very few times do I get that, to see that. Uh, and then the, the other meaningful experience, well, too. one is that, you know, my family was able to s- stick with me through, you know, 16 years of, of deploying, you know, 10 times and TDYs and, you know, the Emotional roller coasters that that we've been on um, that's been you know very meaningful that I haven't become a statistic in the service that we've we've gone through and then the I think the most meaningful experience I had was after Peter's accident was the team that uh, that formed around us yeah and, and more so me knowing that I blamed myself uh quite a bit and I was hoping well you know back then I wanted I wanted everybody to blame me um, I I wanted them to hate me and when they didn't when they when they kind of rallied up around me and supported me and were there for me every step of the way and kept me from going down a pathway of darkness that mm-hmm. that was obviously changed my perspective of, of how I viewed myself and I viewed everything, so that was very meaningful to me.
0: Thank you for being courageous and sharing that with us. Would you say that was your most difficult experience during your Air Force service?
1: Yeah, I would say that that's that was the most difficult was was Peter's loss, um, and, and it was uh, the culminating of of all the losses. So, you know, I I had uh, an you Know 2005 going through INDOC, and uh, indoc is the course that you know was the course that uh, PJs and controllers would go through, or now then PJs and then now it's ANS. INDOC was kind of the, the selection I mean, that was a weeding out, right? And it, was, and it was all it was 12 weeks of you know just suck. Of, just survive right? as long as you could, and uh, that's where the 90% comes from, and what my recruiter was talking about was, you know, only one out of 10 people make it, because most people are quitting in the pool, or even more so in the morning, because they're so anxious about what's going to happen in the day.
0: The unknown, like
1: yeah. Yeah, like we're just not going to, you, so you'd see lines of people, um, candidates or whatever, standing outside in their blues, and like, geez, you know, like, I that never went through my head of, of doing that. And so but during my indoc course uh, it was the ex- first experience of loss. Um, and so my uh the team leader the, the, the team commander on uh, my indoc team major Brian Adrian he he was my you know pretty much my buddy throughout our hell night you had a partner up and so him and I were, were together for like you know like 36 hours and mm-hmm. On the fifth week or so, um, we ended up having like a really gnarly pool session and kind of a pretty gnarly underwater um, experience, and he passed out, which is common right. uh, for us, but he was also 42 or 43 years old going through this, and uh, looking back now, you can see his physical decline, and he ended up having a heart condition that, that he didn't know about it nobody really knew about, and he had a cardiac arrest at the bottom of the pool and they pulled him out, did CPR on him, worked on him for a little bit, and they came back and they got into the hospital and ended up passing away. So at INDOC was my first experience of loss. Uh, and then good to my deployment, you know, the, the one where I was augmenting, mm-hmm. um, and that was a, a very heavy year. 2010 was a was a big loss uh year for for the u.s you know and and part of that loss was a couple friends that i made um on that particular deployment the train up um you know one in particular was a ranger we had been playing some call of duty you know one night and uh went out on on an op and you know this this also sticks with me is you know i was I was really working him up in this video game, and I said, "I <laughs> you're not tactically like this in real life, like you are in, in this video game, or you're gonna just get smoked." And, and that night, he ended up getting killed, mm. and uh, and so that's always stuck with me. And so that theme of loss throughout my life, and, and I never processed any of that. You know, like a couple guys that were close to me. Um, in accidents and you know, killing themselves or you know just deaths in combat or crashes uh, so the, that's I never processed any of that like yeah I never, I never sat and thought about it and I, and I just continued to work and work and work and when Peter's accident happened it was like a flood of not just his loss and me feeling responsible for his loss but every single loss that I've ever had kind of boiled up to that point. And uh, it was all at once, it was happening all at once. And so I think that, yeah, that processing emotionally was the most difficult um, part of my career. And um, you know, then when I did, when the investigation closed out and, and I was removed from the unit, that was the second most difficult part. But also the most freeing at the same mm, time. Wow! And then, and then I'd say the third most difficult part was actually getting to the unit itself and going through selection because that was heinous. It <laughs> <laughs> was, was, was awful.
0: Yeah. Tell us about your decision to separate and pursue another form of service. How did that come about?
1: Yeah. So, like I alluded to, was was after the investigation closed out and you know the, the ramifications of what happened. You know, recognizing that there wasn't anything that we did wrong, um, but they needed to hold somebody accountable for the loss of life, uh, and so I was and actually held accountable as a team leader and removed from the unit, and like that, like I said, it was it was it was a very difficult because this is the place I wanted to be, right? Um, and this is what I like worked really hard for, and it was also freeing of like now I know what to do next. It was like there was. Like finally I have the answer, like and answer, rather than kind of sit in this limbo. So I was given, you know, like uh, a weekend to, to kind of make a decision on where I wanted to get next. And I thought about going to a different unit and where I wanted to go. Ultimately came back and and uh, just with all the loss and losing a lot of the resources that i was. Had used um, there at the unit, like all the human performance staff. I, uh, I was a, just pursuing the medical retirement,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and you know, that was the, the safest answer for me because if I was I was given really about a month to to pretty much like hey you you have to PCS as fast as possible out of this unit, and so uh, the next unit that they were going to give me was Vegas, and I had already been there. And that had been challenging for my family. Right. And I knew in the state that I was in mentally, having just been fired and lost a teammate and, and you know, my life completely getting turned upside down, you know, as far as the career goes. I'm going to show up to this unit with no deployments to do. Like, I'm, people are going to understand why I'm even here. And uh, I'm going to be in Vegas where I have pretty much almost lost my entire family. Um, years before and I knew that pathway was not a good one Mm -hmm. it was not going to result in in a positive outcome for me and my family so I was like I I can't do that I'm going to pursue enough for retirement and get out and I didn't really have a plan I just knew that that wasn't wasn't it right that that was not going to be it Uh, so choosing to get out um, and I just asked them hey can you guys let me figure out what I'm going to do next, and this, there was no skills bridge process at that moment, but there was a, a an internship program uh, similar to that, or what it became, and so I started pursuing an internship with EXOS, um, which is a pro-performance institute that typically works with professional athletes. And, uh, and then since then it just kind of took off into what it is now.
0: Tell us about shields and stripes.
1: Yeah, so I uh, I knew when I started my process of getting out that ultimately those resources and the the HP staff with all the strength conditioning coaches and nutrition and, and physical therapists and the psychologists, they had those not been at my fingertips, I would not be where I am today I, like I don't know where I've been if I didn't have somebody there to lean on and with all these questions and get these answers I don't know where that would have ended up because after Peter's accident there was there was a psychologist that showed up and uh, you know but she's like hey if there's anyone you want to talk to like here's here's we're here for you and you know I don't want to talk to you <laughs> that's the first thing I want like Right. This lady, this lady has no clue who we even are, you know, or what we're doing out here. And uh, and she may have been like the best psychologist world renowned. I don't know. Um, but right then, I didn't like, I still wouldn't want to talk to her because I don't know that person. Yeah. Uh, I know the people that were embedded within the unit. And I want to talk to those folks who understand what we're going through and, and what's expected of us. So. I knew I was gonna lose those and and I was gonna be stuck to the VA system and I was like, Man, there's gotta be another way. Mm-hmm. So I did a lot of research. I Googled a lot of like who's in this space outside of the military, who's in the human performance space and, and are these services already offered somewhere? And there really wasn't. Like you got Warriors Heart and a couple other organizations, but not a lot of them do like a very holistic. Holistic, yeah, all all body like health physical health mental health like all together nobody's doing that um, for a long period of time and so i was like all right i guess like i'll start that up in 2023 or 2024 and so that was my plan was to go to school as this is also a theme of my life i just have these plans then they change and so yeah that was my plan i was gonna, I'm gonna go to school i'm gonna learn about business because i'm you know, uh, just a lowly PJ, like, doesn't really know much about no, nothing about business. And I'm going to learn about it. And then I'm going to start it up. And it's just going to be like smooth and It's going to be sweet. And so I was doing this internship with Exos, going to school. And then at the end of it, at the end of the internship, I was like, hey, is there going to be a job? And, uh, the guy was interning, uh, love the guy, and he's like, not really. <laughs> and I was like, great. Okay. yeah, I was like, so what do I do? And he's like, you have to start um, what you said you're gonna do. You have to do what you said you're gonna do. Just start it. And I was like, okay, I get it. Where do I, how do I do that? Like, I get people say this, you know, the, the old cliche, like, you just gotta start moving. Okay, where is that? Like. Is there a building I go to? Just one step
0: a, at a time, like, Steve. Just- <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, exactly. Just one step at a time. Like, no, I didn't even know physically. Like, is there a phone number I call to start this? Like, and he's like, oh, yeah, just go to LegalZoom. And I was like, okay, I'll go to LegalZoom. And so I went on to LegalZoom and I filed for an LLC. And I was like, damn, there it is. And I started doing some research and, uh, And made some phone calls and they're like, so do you want this to be like a regular business or a nonprofit? And I was like, well, a nonprofit, because it's gonna be hard for people to pay out of their pocket. Like, okay, so you don't want an LLC, you want a 501c3. And I was like, can't you just turn an LLC to a 501c? And like, no, that's not how it works. And so it goes to show that I didn't know anything about business. And uh, so I was like, okay, Uh, back to legalism I go. I dissolved that that LLC, ate about $800, and then started up. The 501 C three, and you know, just started meeting people and, and asking if they can help out, and, and uh, essentially the goal to replicate what we had there at the unit. Yeah. Um, because if if I didn't have those resources, and if only I had the psychologist that showed up at the at Peter's accident, I would push away just about every single person. that's offering me help so there are thousands and thousands of first responders and veterans that don't have the access that we have within special operations and i wanted to make sure that we could be that trusted agent that trusted access to them of people that offering them the services that we know work Mm -hmm. and so that's how I started it up, of, of really just an idea and going to LegalZoom and, and asking uh, my co-founder, Dr. Jennifer Byrne, and like, hey, will you uh, help me in this cause? And really, when I first met her, she was kind of giving me tips and tricks of like, here, this is what you need to do. And I was like, hey, Jen, like, I need you to, like, are you willing to just join me? Like, instead of just giving me tips, like, I need help. And, uh, and so she joined up and so, but now it's you know been operating operating for a year and a half almost two years now and uh, grown significantly
0: and you guys are going through is it your fourth cohort now yes
1: yeah, so our fourth starts in march um and so our the way we started it was that we knew that this process worked but we had to convince and this is kind of the hardest part of nonprofits altogether is convincing people to give you money for nothing in return Right. You get, yeah. You get nothing, and you know, other than a feel good
0: mm-hmm. you get the tax
1: write off, and and maybe that'll benefit you in, in the tax season, but other than that, like there is no product you're getting. There's nothing you're getting out of it, other than like you trust me to do good with your money, um, and that's a hard. That's so in my mind. hard. And it's hard to ask people to to do that too. So,
0: but now you've put real people through. These cohorts it's making a real difference I mean I'm seeing people at the end come out and, and talking about their experience and then and really just kind of spreading that message and I believe helping others because they know how they've been helped but what have you personally learned about healing by essentially setting up these holistic services to help others heal
1: um, I, I learned everybody heals I guess in, in a different way the trauma overall affects the entire body you know
0: yeah
1: and so healing has to be not just the mind it has to be the entire body mm-hmm. nutrition physical injury everything you can think of physically and mentally has to be working cohesively all together so that's the most important thing and to reset the body and the mind in one space uh, as proven for the longevity of, of healing
0: what do you think is the greatest need in that space that you've seen so far?
1: Yeah, so the, the biggest need, I think, is more of these, um, whether that's other people starting their own mm-hmm. or contributing to help us start more of these, that we, we want to be able to run 12 a year. We can only afford to run two a year right now. Okay. Um, essentially, there's too many other organizations and, and, and Know, different representatives that want to commit money to it—it's just like bandages, like short-term stuff. Like, a yeah, like it's a two-two day or three-day workshop, and this is going to solve all your problems. Well, no, it's not. Like this, it's going to take a long time, and we need—I guess—people that that are have ability to help support programs like this to understand that it takes longer than two to three days. It's, it actually takes like three months, you know, or more, more so, like a year, right, take, to get through some of these traumas and it's continuous and these three day workshops are great, but you know, they can produce numbers and say this is the thousands of people we helped, but at the end of the day, that didn't really change their life. That just like you know, kinda of put a band on a on a hemorrhage.
0: Is there any I, I really like that that specific goal of twelve per year versus the two. What would that take? Is it does it take more money, Steve, or is it something else?
1: Yeah, so like our, our greatest limitation right now is is funding.
0: Okay, um,
1: and so you know, just to give people a, a sense or an idea, it's, it costs about fifteen to twenty thousand dollars to put somebody through this. Okay, and uh, and so total about one hundred and twenty, hundred fifty thousand dollars, and that's with none of the staff. It's all volunteer staff right now, and and they're working full time, and and they deserve to be working this as a full time job, so. It costs a tremendous amount of money, but it's also worth that tremendous amount of money because I can tell you quite a few of these folks that have already gone through it have had previous attempts taking their own lives. Um, Right. They all have families, and so you're not just affecting the individual; you're affecting the family and friends. So, typically, if you think you're affecting one person, you're actually affecting like about 150 people. Right. That's so um, true. So that are connected to that individual. So, the amount of money to invest in you know, these eight people is, you know, drop in the bucket compared to what you know, what the outcome is, the positive outcome is. So ultimately, hopefully we can raise, you know, five million dollars annually to be able to to support the twelve cohorts a year. And that's the goal is to get, you know, hundred people a year. We have several of these exos facilities that uh, available to us to use.
0: Awesome. And, um,
1: and we we don't want to have a shortage there's a lot of people that want to volunteer. Um, it's there's it a lot of you know clinical professionals that want to help out it's just being able to pay them for the services and get you know, get these people there and the demand is high we just had a newsletter to get produced by the, the va or put out by the va and that produced floodgates oh a my huge gosh demand that we were not prepared for not that they were, i don't want to say that we weren't prepared for but being able to take this stack of applications and put it on a congressman's desk or, a representative desk and say these are the people like these are the people that are having a hard time right
0: already seeking services yeah. and it's not enough
1: yeah exactly Right. and at this rate you know, it's going to take 10 years to see all of them and that's unacceptable help us you know be able to see all of them in one year if we could have them if we had the funding that we that we need we could see all of them this year rather than all of them in 10 years Wow, so that's that's the change that could that could potentially happen here but we've we're seeing I mean we've only been around for a year and a half right um, and so we've seen some some serious growth, uh, but there's the demand is so high that it needs to happen faster, fast, yeah, fast.
0: Well, if there is someone out there that feels a call to serve in, in any capacity in their own unique way, what's your advice for them? Like, Where or where, how do they get started? Let's start with you.
1: Um, with us, yeah, we have our website and we have a contact email that goes to us and they can email and say, hey, how can I help out? Okay. Um, there's various social media profiles that we have. Um, we have folks that manage the Instagram and LinkedIn profiles and they're welcome to uh, message, message us on there and, and we'll find spots for them. And I'm always open to, to have volunteers or if folks want to set up a fundraising opportunity or come help with a booth set up or read what we're doing somehow, just figure it out. If they don't know what it is that they want, that we can help them figure out. Right. We're always welcome to, to entertain those, those opportunities.
0: Awesome. In general, what do you think?
1: Yeah, yeah. In general, you know, I get asked actually quite a bit. Like, I don't know anything about business, and and I'm learning. It's a steep learning curve every day. That I have different types of meetings um, with folks that have been in the business realm forever, but uh, the understanding the need and the passion. Like, mm-hmm. I think a lot of folks get out of um, the service, and then they go straight into a job, and because the the money is what kind of motivates them to get into that. But the whole reason they got into the military was the service part, yeah. And feeling like they're part of helping somebody, like they 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 showed up for a mission for a cause. They they joined because they wanted to be serving for a cause that they believed in. And once they get out and they're working in a in a regular nine to five job, that, that that passion for serving doesn't die. It's just now they want to serve. They want to continue to serve. So. I would encourage them to continue to explore that. I think that's what a lot of depression comes from—is losing that ability of like that that fire of serving uh, when they enter into this other job. So yeah. I, I would encourage them to explore what that means to them, and if if service, you know, is only like being able to financially do it at this time, like supporting a nonprofit or. Uh, maybe it's not financially, maybe it's, you know, offered as a volunteer in some way, you know, maybe at a weekend or something like that for those opportunities. Or if it's prayers, if they're religious folks, just pray and and that's a, a form of service. Yeah. And then if they want to really jump into the deep end Um, I guess I've proved that you just got to persevere and not listen to those demons that tell you you can't because there's a lot of people that want to see you fail. And it's up to you to to rise to the occasion and prove that you won't.
0: And has the theme continued? Have you been told you won't make it?
1: Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) When I first, like I said, I did the research. Yeah. Wanting to explore this. And I called up like 10 different organizations and nonprofits and of those 10, only one really was like, I will help you.
0: Wow. Yeah, you've been told you won't make it before. <laughs> yeah. It's no so, big deal. It's fuel for your fire.
1: That's exactly it. Yeah. yeah, so the one organization that, that like really, and I, I, I'd like to give a props because they believed and, and I you know, value his his friendship uh, and his mentorship is his Big Sky bravery.
0: So yeah.
1: And uh, he really helps me and Jen just like formulate thoughts and plans and focused ideas on how do we start this. You know, the those those very few people that are believers are the ones that I paid you know, all the attention to. And so, Josh is somebody I respect. So I care what he the input he gave.
0: Yeah, it's so important I, just for people to hear. A lot of us uh, run into what can be perceived as brick walls but there's tools to make it through that
1: oh yeah absolutely
0: well I've kept you far too long but <laughs> I really appreciate your time and uh, your willingness to uh, just be courageous to talk about yourself and your experience with us today
1: oh, thank you for having us good catching up <laughs>